All right, let's go ahead and get started. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're looking at a passage that um, is probably not preached on that often. Uh, it's, uh, it's in Paul's final instructions to the church in Corinth, and in it he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Uh, I have this verse uh, in King James uh, framed on my wall in, in my office, and it says, Watch ye, quit ye like men. I like the way that it, it's put there. And so I want us to walk through that verse as we're continuing the series on the way. I want us to, to look at what this is trying to tell us, recognizing that this text with all of its valiance and all of its, its, its uh, masculinity dripping from it is written to both men and women. And so I want us to figure out what exactly Paul is trying to say here. So first, let's look at be watchful. I remember when I was in fourth grade going to a small Christian school in Gadsden, Alabama, that we had to watch a movie that was called A Thief in the Night that was about the rapture. And it ended with um, Jesus' command, or the angel's command when Jesus ascended to watch. And so it ended with the movie uh, with this lady standing in her living room with kind of a bay window, looking out the window, just watching. That is not at all what's in view here. Uh, That's not at all in view what the angel is telling us to do either. We're not supposed to be standing around in the living room watching to see if Jesus is going to come any moment. What exactly does the commands in the Bible to watch imply to. I I would proffer that you have two different things going on throughout the New Testament. One is an internal struggle and one is an external. One is that we're supposed to be watching ourselves, watching our own heart, and one is we're supposed to be keep paying attention to what's going on around us. So first let's look at the internal struggle and we see that kind of laid out in Matthew chapter 26 and I'll just read starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Here, Jesus knew that soldiers would be coming, but it seems clear to me that what's in view is not looking around outside and watching, but checking your own heart. That we are supposed to be struggling within ourselves, fighting our own flesh. We've talked a lot as we've talked about the way that the real battle that Christianity talks about is in your own heart. I had someone yesterday come to me and said, Pastor Tom, I need to, can I talk to you a minute? And, and I said, absolutely. And we kind of s- stepped away from, there was a crowd of people there, and, and she uh, started sharing some things that had happened in her life and immediately started crying. And she goes, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, look, everybody cries when they talk to me. It's okay. And uh, she then said, she, she said, I'm really struggling because I just feel like I'm very selfish. And this was an 18-year-old girl, and I'm like, well, welcome to the human race. 
Because you know what? We are all very selfish. We want what we want, and we want it now. We want everybody else to do what we want them to do. The whole world would be a much better place if everybody would just do things my way, right? That's kind of what we all think. I've got it figured out. We can watch the news and go, well, if that fool would just do it this way, then it would be okay. We even, as much as all Alabama fans love Nick Saban, I guarantee you, if I'm sitting with you watching a football game, you'll be giving Nick pointers as the game goes on. What he needs to do is pull those ends back. I don't know why he's shooting them across like that. I don't know what the problem is. Hey, I mean, I've got a T-shirt that says, run the ball. Because I'm watching Nick as he's throwing to the flat, same play, same play, same play. I'm like, run the ball. Just run the ball. Now, he is paid a million dollars a game. I, I don't know how much money. They Essentially, the state of Alabama said, we'll give you all the money if you just stay here. And he, so clearly, he knows what he's doing. But I'm pretty sure that I could do it better than him. And you are too. And you yell at the TV just like I do. And so the idea here is, is that Christianity is a call to die to yourself. Paul repeatedly refers to himself as a bondservant for Jesus' sake. And that means that Paul is saying, I'm not only a slave to Jesus, I'm a slave to you as my brother and sister in Christ for Jesus' sake. Because he's writing these letters to the church. And yet, don't we constantly argue and fight for our own way, even in church things? Yesterday, we, did, we recorded the podcast with Patrick, who's an African-American friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about racial issues. And um, we were joking that it's unfortunate that he's being asked to kind of speak for all black people everywhere, and which led us to kind of joking about the fact that, in reality, whenever you say all, in, put anything, all Alabama fans, all Auburn fans, all white people, all black, if you say all, you're probably wrong because nobody's ever going to agree on anything. And I, I said, jokingly, the way I can prove that is let me just announce Sunday that we're going to paint the walls in this, this room and see how many opinions we would get. In fact, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made as a young pastor wasn't theological. It wasn't. It was we needed a new air conditioning unit in the sanctuary. It was the big air conditioning unit. And rather than coming to the church in a business meeting with two options for them to vote on, I just made the mistake of telling the 50-some-odd people who were in that business meeting, we need to buy a new air conditioner because every one of them had a cousin's brother, sister's aunt whose husband did air conditioning and had the best buy and the best type of unit, and mayhem broke out and within about two hours of discussion about exactly who we should hire to, to do the AC unit in the church. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that our selfishness goes away. It means that we're supposed to be aware of the fact that we're fighting it. And we have to be constantly reminding ourselves. I am constantly having an internal conversation that says, Tom, you need to shut up. It's not about you. It's not about your opinion. Shut your mouth. I would say I should probably have that tattooed on the back of my hand because I say that to myself minute by minute because I cannot figure out how to cure myself from being selfish or how to 
regularly, completely overcome my selfishness and my desire to get my way. And so the command to watch, and that's just one sin. You could take worry, you could take gossip, you could take lust, you could take anger, you could take any of the other sins that Paul lists out as fruit of the flesh, and each one of them is the same way. There's not a man in this room that doesn't struggle with lust. There's not a person in this room that at one time or the other hasn't struggled with worry or anger. And the way, what we need to be doing, one of the major things as Christians that sets us apart, the reason why we're not just sinners saved by grace and we're just like the world but we've been saved, all of those statements isn't necessarily fully true because we're supposed to be going through life aware. I'm not supposed to be acting that way. A lost person acts that way and they think that they're totally fine. They're supposed to do things that makes them happy, that fulfills them. We don't look at life that way. And so what Jesus is commanding us to do is watch yourself, check yourself. As you go through life, ask the questions, am I dying to myself right now? There's an internal struggle. There's an external struggle. And the notes I put, there be dragons. If you remember on the old uh, maps, if you look, when they got to parts uh, of the world map that they didn't know what, lied, what was there, they would write on the map, there be dragons. And that was just the warning that, yeah, we don't know what you're going to find there. Uh, and so the reality is, is we don't know what the world's going to be like tomorrow. Nobody started 2020 and said, I, I got, I've got a pretty good clue what's going to happen this year. I, uh, whenever I get a text, it com comes to my watch and will say, you got a text from, and that way if it's something important, I can excuse me and I'll look on my phone. Well, the other day I got a text and it, I look at my watch and it said, text from Etowah Board of Education. And I literally, with Ann and the kids around, I'm like, are we going to school next week or not? Drum roll, please. Because I had no idea what it was going to say. If I read it and it said, you know what, we're never doing school again, it wouldn't have surprised me. Because that's just the world that we live in. And we act like this is new and strange. And as I hope that I demonstrated on Sunday, is that's always been normalcy. That's always the way the world has gone. There's always been war and pestilence and disease and sickness and turmoil. That's always has been and always will be. My entire life, people have said, well, Jesus could come back any moment because there's wars and rumors of wars. And I think, well, there's always been wars and rumors of wars. Every Marine Corps ball, they always say, this year we're celebrating the 226th birthday of the Marine Corps, during which 216 of them, the Marine Corps has seen active combat. Because there's always wars going on. And we need to be watching that outside world. We need to be watching the outside world to guard our heart. It comes back to that internal struggle. Let's look at this, this story in Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Now, we have a very similar saying to what Jesus is quoting here in the Greek. Red sky night, sailors delight. Red sky morning, sailors take warning. So if you go to bed and it's a red pretty sunset, probably not going to rain the next day. If you go to bed, wake up in the morning and it's red outside, you're probably going to have a rough day. 
we have the same saying. So Jesus is quoting them something that they would have heard over and over again. But, so you, you know how to interpret the weather, generally speaking. Um, some of you have a trick knee, and when your knee aches, you know, oh, it's going to rain, my knee's hurting. Um, that sort of thing. He, you know how to do the weather. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The story goes on to say that they, they, they had a hard time figuring out what he was talking about, but he's talking about that interaction he had just had with them, where the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, so what's going to happen next? And Jesus here twists it around and says, you need to watch your own heart. Now, this is where this is applicable to us. And I really, uh, my experience has been that, that some Christians have a tendency to spend all of their time reading books of prophecy. They're worried about what's going to happen out there. Let's do a re- we did a revelation study, and we had really good attendance. Um, people are interested to know what the future is going to hold. The same thing that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were asking Jesus. What's going to happen? And Jesus warns his disciples, okay, don't be like that, that you're so focused on what happens out there that you're not paying attention to what's happening right in front of you. Okay, let me give you an example. Patrick, yesterday in our, our, our blog, said, it's always amazed him how churches will send a mission team to Africa to love on little black kids but feel uncomfortable if he walks into their church. And he gave examples of going into a church and having people say, well, we're so glad that you're, you're here. Why don't you sit um, over here so nobody can see you and um, maybe suggest that, why don't you just not come back? This is really, in, you're not going to be comfortable here. This is to, in today's world. We're not talking about 20 years ago. We're talking about today. So we know that the way the enemy is going to fight us is by making sure that we have divisions in our mind. He didn't care what the divisions are. If it's black or white, he's happy. If it's Republican or Democrat, he's happy. If, he's, if the division is mask or no mask, he's happy. If the division is um, Alabama or Auburn, he's happy. He just wants to make sure that we're divided so that we miss the fact that we're commanded to love each other. If I'm walking into Dollar Tree and there's someone sitting on the sidewalk who's clearly homeless, they stink, they're a different color, they look like a crackhead, I don't want to have anything to do with them, and I go, I got my act together, they don't. And I walk by them and go in the store. The enemy has won because I'm not looking at that as a human being that may need help. I'm looking at them as other, no matter what the other is. The enemy doesn't care how we divide. The enemy just cares that we divide. And we got to watch out for that. We've got to be paying attention around us how we do that. What we're, I'm not saying that we're, we, we, we are stupid, but we should always, as Christians, be vulnerable enough to where people can take advantage of us. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? 
You should be, I mean, I, I know that that guy, probably that story's a lie, but you know what? I know, he knows, his kids know that they came to a church and we helped them to the best of our ability. And that's okay. If they took advantage of that situation, they're not taking advantage of me, they're taking advantage of God. And he'll deal with that. And so we have to be careful that we don't allow those. So that's just one area. We've got to be watching as the world goes on around us. And what we're paying attention for is how do we love, how do we serve, how do we reach beyond ourselves? Watch ye. Let's move on to the second one. Stand fast in the faith. Now, last week, we spent a lot of time talking about faith, and I don't want to necessarily get back in that, but we are commanded to stand. There are truths that are laid down in God's Word that are non-negotiable. We will follow God's Word no matter what happens. I'm closely following what's going on in California uh, as of right now, it, it's my understanding that any churches that met last week have gotten a $10,000 fine and the threat that the, if they meet again, the pastor is going to jail. And one of the churches that I, I, I've been following, is a little bit of a larger independent Baptist church in Los Angeles County, um, they got $15,000 because the choir sang. Now, why they got an extra fine, and John MacArthur had the children's choir sing, so he really wanted to say, you know, we're going to do what we feel like the Lord's calling us to do, whether you like it or not. Um, but they only got a $10,000 fine. But there are, it's going to come a time, and probably sooner than we would have ever believed, where those sorts of things happen. When Tennessee came out and said that uh, we couldn't take the Lord's, that we could not do the Lord's Supper, the deacons and elders of this church had already decided that the first week we came back we were going to do the Lord's Supper. I fully expected that that uh, Governor Ivy would say the same thing because she had kind of been tracking with Tennessee and a lot of stuff. And I actually talked to our sheriff and said, "When you cuff me, please don't break my watch because we're doing the Lord's Supper, no matter what she says." And that's a small thing. But further and further, if in my lifetime I believe that it will be illegal to tell someone that it, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. That will be illegal to quote that because that's hate. You can't tell somebody that they're wrong. And you know what? We just have to stand on the truth and let the chips fall where they may. I've gone to jail for the devil, so I'm sure going to do it for God. So... We have to be prepared and recognize, remember the primary thing about faith. As we're standing in our faith, and we're standing in faith, the primary thing about faith isn't me, it's what my faith is in, and so God is the primary. And God's going to do what he said he would do. And so, you know, that even falls in. One of the things I failed to say last week that I really, in thinking about it, that comes down to our salvation, because if it was up to me to keep myself saved, there's no way that I could do it. It's up to God to keep me, and he's fully capable. Okay, we get to the heart. Quit ye like men. I like the way the King James says it. Um, but the, the ESV is, is almost verbatim from the Greek when it says, act like men. And oh my. Does that cause problems? I included in your notes a little little uh, snippet from 2014 on Twitter 
uh, a lady who is uh, kind of a well-known Christian blogger, Twitter person, um, a, a Christian writer who is the chair of the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism at Moody Bible Institute, Ed Stetzer, uh, published a series of, of papers in Christianity Today that eventually became a book, and that it was titled Act Like Men. And when the, he said, hey, check out my series, Act Like Men, uh, this lady commented, uh, I don't think anywhere in the Bible does it command us to act like men. And he simply responded to that by putting this verse, act like men. And there was lots of debate on that whole Twitter comment section about what exactly Paul is trying to say. And there's no way, the, the Greek word there is uh, literally uh, means manly, act manly. There's no other way to translate it. It's, uh, it's a word where we get uh, lots of, of English words that deal with scientifically mankind. It's called, it's, uh, the word is andrizomai, which is andra, which is, always means men. Again, there's just no way to, to... Now, when Paul said this, what he was looking for would have been for everybody, there's qualities of manhood that everybody to who he was writing would have understood. Now, remember in 1 Corinthians 13, just three verses before, Paul juxtaposition being a man with being a child. So here, he's not necessarily saying, be a man, not a woman. He's saying, be a man, not a little kid. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I acted like a child. Now that I'm a man, I put away childish things. I mean, there are things that are expected for children, which is why we correct them. If I walked in the sanctuary and there's some 10-year-olds running up and down the aisles, I'm going to go, all right, y'all settle it down. Let's not do that in here. Let's not play in here. Let's get out. If I come in and Bruce is running up and down the aisles, I'm going to have a totally different response. I'm going to say, I need to make some phone calls. There's something wrong. So when kids act like kids, it's okay. When men act like kids, it feels weird. Now, I will say, in our culture, that statement is not smiled upon. Clearly, you see here that just quoting a Bible verse that says, act like men, Ed Stetzer caught a bunch of heat. I had someone uh, at Dan Gray's funeral that said, I want to ask you something, preacher. And that always scares me. That question always scares me. But I'm like, okay, go ahead. And he said, I was looking at Dan's yearbook. And so he was uh, graduate from high school in 67 or 68. And if you look at the pictures of the boys, they look like young men. They look like they're wearing ties. They're... they're their faces seem like they're young men. If I look today and go by the high school, the girls look like they're 35. And the boys look like they're 14. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that we as a church have met with a group of guys who were in their mid-30s to teach them how to change the oil in their car, how to change the various and sundry fluids, how to 
how, how a gasoline engine works, how to do sheetrock, how to stud a wall, some basic things, and it came because they never had a dad. There's nothing wrong with not knowing what you don't know. But if a young man grows up in a house where it's his mother or grandmother that's raising him, that's not his fault. And in our culture, I fear that the idea of manliness has been twisted so much that just saying to a group of Christians that Paul commands us to act like men is controversial. Because on the one hand, you have people that react and go over here, and they think that acting like a man, man is cussing and, and wearing, you know, act, acting like a, a vulgar, um, macho slob. Woman, go get me a sandwich kind of a thing. And then you have people over here that have no idea how a man's supposed to act. And I will say that in the church today, we have hyper-feminized the church. Some of the music that we sing makes me feel uncomfortable. Jesus, I'm going to crawl up in your lap and stroke your beard. Walk, kind of songs. I, I, I don't know what to do with that. But I, some people have called it the Oprahization of the church. That the church, because the average attendee in the church at around 70% are females, that the church has swung over here to where men generally don't feel comfortable. I rarely have a man walk into my office that doesn't act surprised because I'm a man. They think that because I'm a preacher that I'm not going to have WD-40 on the counter or that I'm not going to have a wrench laying on my desk or that that surprises them that to be a preacher you aren't some kind of feminized being not supposed to know how to do nothing. And I've joked before that typically if I'm at a party or someplace and somebody goes, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. Normally that kills a conversation. They're like, oh. And they walk away. And uh, I've been, I have been at parties where I was at, I was at a child's party this year. And I noticed that I'm sitting, standing out at the pool of, of the people's house. It was a birthday party that Ruthie had been invited to, and it's all the mothers. And I'm like, where did all the dads go? And um, I f eventually found out that all the guys were hanging out at, a, at the front part of the house so that they could drink beer. Since I was there, they didn't feel like they could drink anything. So when I did walk out, they had all of, everybody had poured their beer into Yeti cups. And so they're, they're acting like, and it's like, you know what, I've seen a beer before. It's okay. I don't, you don't have to. But there's this thinking that if you're a preacher, you somehow have never heard a cuss word. And so I have people all the time go, if they accidentally drop a curse word, they'll go, oh, I'm sorry, preacher. And it's like, it's okay. I've heard it before. It's, it's fine. Um, so here, Paul is saying, act like men. And the, what he's going for is be courageous, be a protector, be someone who looks out for those around you, be someone who stands for right when nobody else does. He's not saying being an arrogant, machoist jerk that says, woman, go get me a sandwich, because there's nowhere in the Bible where that kind of behavior could be allowed. In fact, I would say that that kind of fake manhood is a big part of the problem. What he's saying is, is be someone who is courageous in the, no matter what else is going on, you stand and do what's right. I have regularly told my son as he was growing up, 
You do what's right no matter what everybody else does. You don't have to, well, everybody was doing this or everybody was doing that. I don't care what everybody else on earth do. You carry my name. You do what's right. There have been times in my life when I was with a group of people and nobody was standing up for what was right and I was the only one who said, hey, this isn't right. Let's not do this. Let's stop this right now. To me, the reading the whole thing about Harvey Weinstein that blew my mind is out for 20 some odd years, no man stood up to him and said, you ever touch my daughter again, I'm going to break your arms off and beat you with them. Where were the fathers? As I read the stories about the horrific things that he did, I'm like, why did some father not beat him senselessly who had the guts to say, yeah, I'm going to go to jail for simple assault? but you're going to remember the date, not me. And so there are times when we need men to stand up and act like men. And we need women who have that same attitude that says, you know what, I don't care what happens, I'm going to be the protector. I'm going to make sure that those who are weaker are going to be sheltered. I'm going to make sure that what is right is what's going to stand. That's a command because, like I said, Paul knew he was writing to both men and women when he said, act like men. And he had the most, and the church has looked at this verse that way throughout history. In the fourth century, um, in the fourth century, Didymus, the blind, said, Paul tells them to be courageous and strong like an athlete or soldier of Christ, doing everything with love toward God and each other. Ambrosia said they were to stand firm, being bold in confessing what they had been taught. They were to be strong in both word and deed because it is the right combination of these which enable people to mature. John Calvin said in 1500, he encourages them to be manly and courageous. So throughout Christian history, we've understood this to mean be courageous, be bold, be strong, stand for what is right Because the very next words that Paul says is, quit you like men, be strong, and do everything that we do out of love. So we are to be strong. In Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times I pleaded about the Lord, about my thorn in the flesh, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is what Paul is saying, both in Ephesians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians. He is saying, don't be strong in yourself. Be strong in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Here's what we're saying. I, I once had a, uh, a very wise preacher tell me, You, as a preacher, are in a dangerous place because you're a good natural speaker. And that's scary because you can phone it in and nobody will know. So be afraid. I've always taken that to heart because 
if I don't put in the hours to prepare to stand in front of you on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and say, thus says the Lord, I'm going to mess up in the worst possible way. And so it's easy in the things that we're good at, that we're strong in, to just think, I got this. And the Bible tells us over and over through story and directly, when you think you're strong, when you think you're standing, that's when you need to be afraid. And our weaknesses, we know we can't do it without the Lord. There's no way, God, I can do this unless you, you help me. It comes back to that question that I asked this church on the very first sermon I ever preached here. I said, could God have used Saul to ki kill Goliath? Absolutely he could have. God can do whatever he wants to do. Instead of using a man that was a head taller than everybody else in Israel... A man that was big and strong and beefy. He was that guy that when he walked in the room, everybody had been like, ooh, there's a guy. I recently, with Ann, we were at Absolute working out, and I, this guy walks in, and he was probably 6'7", six, 6'8", six, weighed about probably 325 to 350. My first thought when he walked in, he was so big, and he had on like sweatpants. I mean, and this was in the summer, and a sweatshirt, and the hood was up. He was a big guy. He walked in, and I thought, oh, that's good. You know, big boy's coming in, going to do a little bit in the gym. He first walks over, and he gets a bar, which weighs 45 pounds, and he puts on two sets of plates, and the plates are 45 pounds each. So he sets up, and he's got 225 on this bar, and he starts going, like it's no big thing. Just throwing it around. I'm like, no, big boy ain't in here getting shape. Big boy's in shape. And so when I saw him working out, I had to slide over beside him, and I found out that he was a defensive end for the University of Alabama, and the gym had been closed, so he was trying to get some work done. And when I said, well, I'll catch you later, and put my hand out, and he went to shake my hand, his hand completely covered. It was like he was, it was, like he was I felt like a little bitty kid. I was I, like, I wanted to say, well, thanks for meeting me, mister. I mean, it was like, here's this huge mountain of a man. And so if somebody like that beat Goliath, what would everybody say? He's a hoss. Did you see what he did? Yeah, he's a man. He took that rock and flung it, and boom, it went through the back of his head. I saw it with my own eyes. Because you know that story is going to grow over and over and over again. But instead, God chose a little boy the text tells me he was prepubescent. He, he hadn't gone through puberty yet. He couldn't fit on Saul's armor. It looked like silly. He couldn't even walk in it. He's a little shepherd boy. And so when David killed Goliath, nobody said, David is a hoss. Everybody said, what an amazing God. God loves to use broken things that this earth says is worthless and use them for his glory. God loves to take the things where we're weak because we cry out to him and say, God, I can't do this on my own. And then he gets the glory. And so we're commanded to be strong, which means the way as Christians we're strong is we are dependent this world tells us the way to be strong is be independent. And what the Bible tells us the way that we're strong as believers is we're dependent on our God. We're to be strong in the Lord 
and let all that you do be done in love. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second one is like it. So he's saying, just, just right up there with loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, is love your neighbor as yourself. We all love ourselves. We started this out by saying every person in here struggles with selfishness. And we're to love our neighbor. And our neighbor is whoever is up on this earth at the same time we are. Just like we love ourselves. Father God, Lord, I pray that you apply your word to our heart, that we would obey you, we would be changed by your word. Help us to quit like men. Help us to stand strong in the faith. Lord, help us to do everything that we do in love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.